Namaste, friends and listeners. Mandela here. In order to keep the podcast ad-free, I'm asking folks to donate a few dollars each month. You can support my podcast and outreach programs in schools by visiting traillesstravel.net and following the link to my Patreon account. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Today, the trail has traveled is being recorded in Missoula, Montana. We're in the valley, and I'm sitting with Elizabeth Unger, and she is a Nat Geo explorer and filmmaker who has worked and traveled across all seven continents. She's a Sundance Documentary Film Program grantee, and was selected in 2002 for Doc NYC's 40 Under 40 list. Her award-winning feature directorial debut, Tigre Gente, world premiered at Tribeca Film Festival in 2021, screened at more than 35 film festivals internationally, and will be broadcast by National Geographic in 2023. An environmentalist and activist, Liz finds herself drawn to challenging, immersive, and impact-driven projects that can break through the boundaries set in her own mind. Well, first and foremost, it is quite an honor to be sitting with you, Elizabeth. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today on The Trail Less Traveled. Thank you, Mandela. Thank you so much for having me. Um, It's a real pleasure to be here. My first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? Great question. I actually grew up in the suburbs of Maryland, you know, white picket fence suburbs um, where I didn't feel like at a first glance adventure was a huge part of my life. But I found myself daydreaming a lot about the world. I found myself researching different things online, animals, nature. Um, I interned at the Center of Marine Biotechnology in Baltimore in high school you know, I really had an, a deep interest in science and, um, you know, volunteered at the National Aquarium in Baltimore. And I carried that on to me to college where I pursued a degree in biology and wildlife conservation. Um, and it was then in college when I was 18 years old that I found myself, you know, deep diving into the internet, you know, late at night trying to find a place that I could volunteer, a wildlife refuge that I could volunteer at. And I knew I needed to see the world. I knew I needed to get out and explore and see something, anything. And I pushed myself to go to Bolivia. This is 2009. Um, And that was really my first foray into traveling alone, you know, going into Latin America, volunteering at a wildlife refuge in the middle of the rainforest, and really just taking a leap of faith to do something that I wasn't sure about, but I knew it'd be a grand adventure. And that trip to Bolivia ended up changing my life. Um, It really, you know, helped propel me to the place that I am today, you know, over a decade later, um, as a documentary filmmaker suddenly, 
with a biology degree <laughs> that I'm not quite using, but it still was an amazing experience throughout that progression of interested in animals, interested in nature, and then became interested in storytelling and film. I would say when I was in Bolivia volunteering at a wildlife refuge that were hosting victims of the black market in the country, working with those victims, those animal victims, um, like ocelots and jaguars, seeing what had happened to them and knowing that they would never really truly be able to go back and be truly wild again. You know, once you poach an animal or keep an animal for entertainment purposes or poach them for their parts or what have you, um, that animal was very unlikely to ever have the life that it once knew. And so I saw the fallout of that for the first time in Bolivia. And I always kept in my mind an idea that I wanted to go back to this place and examine further wildlife trafficking um, in the country and you know, in Latin America as a whole. Because a lot of the news I had heard about on wildlife trafficking was mostly focused in Africa with elephants and rhinos. Mm. I hadn't really heard that much, both on the scientific front in conservation research, um, as well as in the press about wildlife trafficking in Latin America, it felt like a bit of a black hole. And so I, I just kept it, you know, in my mind, please remember I had a biology degree and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, in 2009, I volunteered in Bolivia, um, just to get a taste of what it was like to do some sort of volunteer work at a refuge. But then, you know, in college, once I got my uh, biology degree, I um, interned and volunteered in Mexico um, with, a, you know, as a PhD research assistant and really tried to figure out, hey, is my future in science? Is my future in research? And I found out very quickly that the answer was no. I wanted to pursue something that wasn't defined by hard edges. I wanted to pursue something where I could stretch the bounds of my creativity. And I felt that storytelling was the answer for me, that I could use a medium that could go across all different sectors, all different genres, and I could choose what I wanted to focus on. Storytelling became the medium for me to be free in the world and focus on a number of different things that appealed to me at any given time. So when I graduated, did field research and realized that maybe writing an academic paper isn't the route I want to go, even though it's very noble pursuit and I respect scientists and conservationists, they do such important work. Um, I started going into the photojournalism route and I really just tried to learn how to do photography well. I don't think I ever became a stellar you know, photographer. I think my photographs are okay, um, but I could write. I found out I could really write. And I thought about different careers in writing and photojournalism, and I realized very quickly again that it wasn't very sustainable. Um, and I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to make that my career either, but I did feel decent at it, and I was getting work from National Geographic. Mm -hmm. um, I actually applied for a National Geographic grant um, that I ended up receiving and it helped kind of propel me into, um, you know, thinking that I had a chance, I really had a shot, if National Geographic was gonna back me and believe me, even with a small grant, you know, I could convince other people to believe in me too. So 
fast forward from my trip in Bolivia in 2009 to going to grad school at NYU in 2014, um, I was deep in grad school and I was doing this photojournalism work and I ended up dropping out because I realized I did not need a degree to pursue these things. Mm-hmm. And so National Geographic started um, funding me with small grants. I remember thinking to myself, what about the documentary space? That's something I've never pursued before. I wonder if I'd like that. And I came up with an idea. Um, I thought about my experience in Bolivia all those years ago, missed my biology background, I missed talking about wildlife conservation, and thought to myself, you know, maybe I can do a story either a photojournalism story or a short documentary on, you know, this really interesting place in Bolivia that I'd gone before and and really profile the caretakers of the animals in this wildlife refuge. We ended up doing a Kickstarter um, that raised like a small amount of money, but it was enough to get a small team to go down in 2015 and do like a research and development trip. And during that time, um, we found out about this massive story of jaguar teeth being trafficked for the Chinese black market. And so while it was local news in Bolivia, um, internationally, it was not known. It was not reported on and very few conservation groups even knew about it. So I found out about, you know, jaguar teeth being smuggled out um, by some Chinese people back to China Um, And I thought to myself, wow, this is not on anybody's radar. Everyone is talking about the Chinese demand for rhino horn and elephant tusks. This is kind of a massive deal that no one's reported on this yet. Um, Because what we found out is that Jaguar was actually replacing tiger. Mm -hmm. Tigers have been um, decimated by like 95, 96% in the last 100 years. Mm -hmm. And because tigers are so hard to find now, Wild tigers are so hard to find. Jaguars are now becoming substitutes because their teeth are the most similar um, next to the tiger, most similar in size, you know, to a, a what I'm saying, sorry. Uh, jaguar teeth are more similar uh, to tiger than most big cats other than the lion. The lion is actually like the second biggest uh, teeth, I believe, that those cats have. So... Anyway, um, we found out about this issue. Uh, Jaguars were being decimated at rates that no one had kind of reported on yet. And we felt like we were going to be the first team to go out and actually do a visual story on this problem. We pitched National Geographic. They funded us. They gave us seed money, um, and which we were extremely grateful for. And then a small team went out in 2016 to start filming. And a film that I thought was going to take six months ended up taking close to eight years. I dropped out of grad school. I committed my life to this film and basically spent three to four years in the field jumping from Latin America to China um, following the two protagonists of the film. One of them is a Bolivian park ranger um, and the other one is a Hong Kong journalist, and both of them were investigating this Jaguar trade from opposite sides of the world. So our team followed both of those investigations for years. And along the process, we uncovered some really incredible things. 
Um, but it was important to me to show a Chinese point of view in this story in a genre that typically villainizes Chinese people. It was more important to me, instead of a get the bad guy type of um, storyline, we wanted to understand the why. So this story to us feels more sophisticated, nuanced, empathetic, and feminine in its gaze um, in a genre that is dominated by men. And I think what we, come, what we came up with, Tigre Hente, is this beautiful, poetic, visceral, um, feature-length documentary that does expose this new Jaguar trade for the Chinese black market, but in the process it asks very um, nuanced, delicate questions about why is this happening? Should we villainize the people that want these products? No. And basically sets the uh, stance of we need to build bridges in order to better understand each other and work together to solve this problem. Otherwise, the problem will never be solved. You can't just stigmatize or point your finger at the other side. Um, and sometimes that I like, you know, what I like to tell people is with beef, you know, Americans eat huge amounts of beef. Um, and let's say that there's a small amount of the Chinese population that want jaguar fangs. Um, what's worse exactly? What honestly is worse for the environment? Mm -hmm. Americans eating beef every single day mm -hmm. um, or a very small amount of Chinese people looking for big hat products. I mean, it's interesting when you put that into perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's so, just because eating beef is legal doesn't mean it's necessarily better for the hearth. Mm -hmm. um, so I just ask people to kind of open up their minds and be open to hearing from the other side, um, not be so quick to blame and judge because that's just going to create more separate separatism and wildlife trafficking, to be honest with you. Uh, so that's Tigre Hente. Tigre Hente will actually be broadcast on National Geographic Channel in Latin America on April 22nd, which is Earth Day. And it will also be streaming on Disney+. Plus. That's the voice of Elizabeth. Everything you just said resonates so much talking about listening to the other perspective. I mean, we face so much of that in our culture and worldwide where people aren't listening to each other. And I think it's so important. If you expect someone to hear your perspective, you also listen to theirs. And I think it's so important for us to listen to each other and to show the other side. So I can't wait to watch your films. Thank you. Elizabeth, I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about your film Tigre Gente and the Impact Campaign. Thank you. Yeah, so Tigre Gente is a feature-length documentary that will be broadcast by National Geographic and streamed on Disney Plus on Earth Day. Our team is also launching an impact campaign alongside the film. And a lot of people don't know what an impact campaign is for a documentary. And what I like to tell people is, imagine the film as the message. And the impact campaign is all of the nuts and bolts that you need in order to spread the message in a way that can make change. Most people that watch a film don't actually change anything, you know? Like, a lot of people can watch a film, they can be moved and touched by it. Some people might change some things, but you really need to reinforce that, you know, viewing that they have with workshops, with dialogue, with extra activities that can hone in and make them think about and ruminate on what they just watched and if they want to make any change at all. My business as a filmmaker is to attempt to change hearts and minds and move people and 
create grand emotions and actually, you know, make change in the world by using empathy and compassion. That's my hope as a filmmaker. But it's imperative and critical that filmmakers partner with researchers, scientists, politicians, local communities, everyone. We all need to work together in a network in order to make the type of change that you hope to make. Um, So for Jaguar Conservation, our impact team is made up of people from Bolivia and China. Uh, We're a very global team that hopes to work with grassroots organizations, local indigenous communities, all the way up to the highest level of government. Of course, that's easier said than done. Um, We've been working for the last six months organizing an impact campaign, doing the hard research, making the coalitions, making the partnerships and make sure that this is successful. So what we're planning to do is having a very robust social media campaign, um, which we have our own handles, you know, at Tigre Gente. Um, But National Geographic will also be pushing out our social media posts across, you know, National Geographic's and uh, Disney's social media um, platforms as well, which is really exciting. Um, Our posts are going to be in Spanish and Mandarin. It is critical that we approach and we're able to speak to Chinese audiences on this. Think about the number of films over the last 10 years that stigmatize Chinese communities for the demand of these products. We are trying to shake the mold up, do something different, use empathy as a bridge to bring different communities together and stop, you know, preconceived notions. It's time to really start speaking with one another. And it was very, very important to me that I had a global team in place in order to carry that out. People from these communities themselves leading the way. So we will be launching our impact campaign um, over the next month. We plan to do a number of workshops and uh, screenings with pop-up eco theaters in the Amazon and Bolivia to you know rural communities that experience high levels of human jaguar conflict. Um, and we also hope to work with Chinese communities that are living within Bolivia as well. Um, and it's you know a really exciting project. We just want to help people see the Jaguar as an icon of national beauty and pride um, that they can rally around. And really this film is about the celebration of the Jaguar and using love and empathy as a way to solve this problem as opposed to stigmatization and divisiveness. Um, It's not traditional, but I think with a film like this, it's possible to do it. And um, we're really excited. We are very, very excited about this. So that's kind of, you know, the big project this year as terms of, you know, Tigre Gente being released to the world, having this impact campaign being launched and seeing if we can make real change. And we actually are partnering with the University of Oxford. They're going to be doing our impact campaign analysis because we want to know, you know, what really makes an impact and how do you really measure it? A lot of documentaries, they like to say, oh, you know, this is how many people watched our film. Mm -hmm. This is how many hits that we got on our social media. That doesn't really mean that you made an impact. It just talks about how much reach you had. For us, we're bringing in a postdoc from the University of Oxford, Diego Verissimo, who is an expert in behavioral analysis and change in the environmental space. So he'll be creating qualitative methodologies to figure out hey, how do people feel right after our film? How do people feel three months, six months, a year after? How much change does this film really make? And how can we actually measure it? 
The result is going to be a peer review paper that hopefully will help other filmmakers and conservationists understand how environmental media can make real change in the world. We just want to set a precedent and pave the way for other people that want to make real change. Wow. I'm just going to go ahead and say you're my hero. (laughs) I'm over here like holding back the tears because everything you're talking about is the intention behind the trail has traveled as well. You know, I give presentations at the Roxy Theater in town and that's how I was connected to you because you have a film coming up that we're going to talk about shortly, Batsy's. And that's going to be part of the International Wildlife Film Festival this year. But I did just want to talk to you about jaguars. And one pretty common question I think you might hear, or I know that I've heard before from kids, is what's the difference between a jaguar and a leopard? Jaguars are fantastic. They're stunning. You know, jaguars, uh, there's an amazing wildlife biologist and conservationist named Alan Rabinowitz, who passed away a few years ago, but he was, you know, a legend in the conservation world. He, um, you know, was a, was a co-founder of Panthera. Um, he, in a book uh, that he gave me once, actually, he describes jaguars as being this cunningly intelligent creature, you know, one of the smartest, he thought, of the big cats that were out there, just always searching, always kind of looking for something, some sort of, you know, um, weakness. And jaguars are just extremely, extremely fascinating animals. You really just can't look away. They, they almost look like they're staring right into your soul. Such an intense gaze. Um, I will say that jaguars are, you know, keystone species in Latin America. They are an apex predator. Um, jaguars eat a huge number of uh, types of prey. Um, they can eat capybaras, and uh, they can eat peccaries, and they can eat armadillos, and they can eat really anything you can think of. Um, they're amazing scavengers. They're very strong swimmers. Jaguars have such a strong bite, they can crush skulls. You can see videos online of jaguars pulling out these caimans or even these um, alligators out of swamps, um, and that they just don't have a chance. The jaguars are so strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so jaguars, they roam o- over huge distances, and I think that's how they really establish their territories. Um, they're more solitary, and... Unfortunately, because they roam so far, what's happening with jaguars is that they're experiencing severe habitat loss. They've lost over 50% of their range, their historic range. And so if a jaguar roams very far and there's land fragmentation because someone has created, you know, a farm or they've uh, chopped down the forest for whatever reason or they've put cattle on a piece of land, jaguars can easily roam into new territories, which means that their genetic pool is shrinking. They're not able to mate with jaguars across longer distances. They can only mate with jaguars that are not um, divided by this land fragmentation. So jaguars are facing threats even outside this new trade for their teeth. They're already facing threats from habitat loss, land fragmentation, and climate change as a whole. Um, They also, in their quest for, you know, food, when they come across cattle, it's easy prey that they can just eat, and that's causing a lot of human-jaguar conflict. Of course, farmers don't want their cattle to be eaten by jaguars, and so they're going to shoot the jaguar in many cases in order to protect, um, 
their home to, and protect their cattle. It makes total sense. But unfortunately for the Jaguars, um, they just are dealing with a lot of uh, issues right now and they really need our help. I think that with this new trade in the Chinese black market, it could be the nail on the head for Jaguars. And we really need to do something before Jaguars turn into tigers. And like I mentioned, tigers have been decimated by over 95% in the last hundred years. So I think with this film and this impact campaign, we want to use Jaguars as an example of how to save a species with a new empathetic framework. Jaguars are listed as vulnerable on the IUCN red list. They're not listed as endangered, but they will get there if we don't stop people's actions now. And we can only do that by building bridges, using compassion, empathy, and respectful dialogue with one another. I love what you just said about basically taking proactive measures to prevent them from ever becoming endangered. I was connected to Elizabeth because of the International Wildlife Film Festival, and she has another film that is going to be screened at IWFF. It's called Batsies. And so we're going to shift gears from jaguars to bats and move from Bolivia and China to Texas. And uh, I would love it if you could take us on that adventure and the story behind that film. Thanks, Mandela. Yeah, the thing about me is I tend to be drawn to genre-bending work. So Tigrehante is a genre-bending film that has to do with jaguar conservation and the people who are fighting for jaguars, right? But we filmed it in a very like mystical, poetic, you know, visceral way that it felt completely different than any other wildlife crime film I had ever seen. Um, and we really deeply ingrained the mysticism of the Bolivian lowlands into that film. With Batsies, I went a completely other direction, still wanted to do genre-bending work, but the story about Batsies is that um, a production company out of Texas called Finn and Fur, headed up by a good friend of mine, Ben Masters, approached me to do a film, a short doc, about um, a species pretty much of my choice. And they kind of gave me a list of the ones that I wanted to choose. And I said, I do the bat film. And I was like, if you want to have me work on this, it's going to be weird. Mm -hmm. If you're okay with that, I'll come on and direct it. And they're like, as long as it's 15 minutes or under, like we're in. Um, The client that wanted to do these short films, which is now a series, was H-E-B, which is a massive supermarket out of Texas. Um, That's a beloved supermarket chain that wants to get into uh, supporting environmental work, media, environmental films. And so they want to be kind of like the next Patagonia, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when Finn and Fur approached me because they knew my work, Um, And I told them, I would love to do this project as long as you're okay with something experimental. Both Finn and Fur and HEB were game for that. So I really, really feel grateful that they're willing to kind of take a leap of faith and do something odd with me. Um, Something that could be odd and beautiful and wonderful and impactful. So with Batsy's... um, we had to develop characters for that film and we were looking at different researchers in Texas that were um, focused on bat conservation. And I found these two amazing women, um, Dr. Sarah Fritz and Dr. Sarah Weaver, who happened to be best friends, really interesting characters, you know, tattooed up, almost like derby girls, um, women, powerful women, and and they were at the height of their careers. Um, And they also happened to be, like I said, obsessed with bats 
and really fascinating people that were doing cutting edge bat conservation work. I knew I could go a particular way with this documentary that echoed any other wildlife conservation film that you could see at festivals like IWFF, really powerful films, but I wanted to try my hand at something kind of a bit different. And I remember sitting, um, you know, on a shoot, sitting with the cinematographer in a like big van as we we're driving through like Southern Texas. And I remember looking at him thinking to myself, oh, I know what this film is. This is a, like a rock doc. This is going to be a bat conservation doc about two powerful ladies that are best friends trying to save an animal that people consider as the ultimate outcast. People don't really like bats. You know, bats are supposedly um, responsible for the outbreak of COVID. <laughs> what I'm saying here is bats are very popular right now. Mm -hmm. um, but what a lot of people don't realize is that bats are seriously under threat. And most people who don't really care um, need to understand that bats are actually really integral to not only our ecosystems, but uh, the economic uh, value that the U.S. has in agricultural industry. Bats actually pollinate a huge uh, number of plants within our food system, like agave, chocolate, um, and so on and so forth. People also don't quite realize that bats actually act as a natural insecticide with cotton and other crops across the U.S. They eat so many um, moths, types of moss, cotton ear moss that predate on cotton and other critical crops that U.S. farmers save literal billions of dollars every year because bats come out and predate on these insects every night. Um, so bats are actually incredibly important to our economy, food systems, and the ecosystem. Um, and they're worth saving. And so as I went into deep into research for this film and found all of this out, realized that there's these two powerful, kooky, fun women that were best friends, obsessed with bats, and were on the front lines of saving them, I wanted to do an experimental rock doc that could showcase and highlight their friendship, their deep friendship as women in science, and also helps us with bats they were. So we uh, approached a band out of Austin named Annabelle Chairlegs, my editor, her name's Julie Keller, amazing editor who also moons, moonlights as a rock star in Austin, Texas, uh, is friends with that band. And uh, Annabelle Chairlegs very gracio graciously allowed us to use their music as a soundtrack to this film. So what we get out of it is a very flashy, fun, interesting genre bending film with a psychedelic rock soundtrack that isn't typical in this type of genre and i think it's really important to do this type of genre bending work and appeal to audience members that aren't typically going to watch a film about bats because we need to appeal to people that aren't natural born environmentalists or wildlife lovers we need to really reach the fringes of of the people that would watch these types of films. And so if anybody likes psychedelic rock and they're interested in watching um, really interesting friendship and some funny moments and beautiful moments and um, learn about a new threat to bats, which is wind turbines actually, um, this is a film for you. So it is 15, it's about 15 minutes long. It's a really fun film. And I think, and I hope people will 
come out of the theater um, and just have a different perspective and feel really good about what they just watched. I think we need more uplifting films in the wildlife conservation space. That's the voice of Elizabeth Ungar. She is a National Geographic explorer, Sundance-supported filmmaker, storyteller, and environmentalist. We're talking about her second film, Batsies. Now, Elizabeth, kind of like you elaborated on jaguars, can you tell us a little bit about bats and what you've learned about bats? Sure. Bats are really interesting creatures. Uh, Things that I learned in the process of making this film... Bats, Mexican free-tail bats, which, you know, migrate through Mexico into Texas, they are considered the fastest mammal on Earth. They can fly up to 100 miles per hour. Who knew? Um, Bats, there's so many different species all over the world. A lot of people have heard of, you know, fruiting bats out of Australia. Bats can grow to be incredibly old. I think some bats have been recorded to be um, 30 to 40 years old. You would never expect that from such a small animal. Bats echolocate. They have this fascinating ability to just um, be able to sense um, just with like waves coming from them where an object is. um, And that's how they're able to eat insects so well. Something that I found out that was really fascinating is that there's even like a jamming technique that bats and moths have. It's almost like survival of the fittest, if you will. Bats and moths, they can jam out each other's um, echolocation or signaling, and it makes it harder uh, for the bats to catch the moths. The moths have developed a defense mechanism in order to jam each other, almost like uh, waves on a radio. You can get jammed, and that's kind of how it works with these animals. Such fascinating um, evolutionary adaptations that these animals have had. Um, and some of the things that are plaguing bats right now, a big disease is white nose syndrome. So if you've heard about white nose syndrome, bats, um, once they get it, I mean, I don't even think that there is a cure in any way. It's just wiping out huge colonies of bats. Um, That combined with climate change um, and just people wanting uh, to get rid of them out of urban areas, that is definitely challenges that bats are facing. The thing is, is that in Austin, Texas, there is um, a bridge where tons of people go as a tourism you know, draw to see bats coming out of this massive bridge in Austin to fly out. Um, bats can actually generate a lot of tourism dollars if urban areas know what to do with them. A lot of times they just want to clean them out of their you know, their areas because people are afraid of rabies. Mm-hmm. Um, another big misconception is that you know, when people wear masks around bats, let's say researchers are wearing, um, you know, N95 masks around bats, it's not because they're afraid bats are going to give them COVID. They're afraid they're going to give the bats COVID. And I think that's like a huge misconception that people have. Mm-hmm. Um, so bats are the very, very interesting creatures where you, if you hold one in your hand, they have their own distinct personality. Um, and it's this massive cult following online of bat lovers if you can find them lots of people with bat tattoos a lot of people that decorate their homes full of bat paraphernalia there are bat lovers out there and we want to spread the love to folks that might not know um, all these amazing facts and uh, reasons why bats are so important and why they deserve to be loved too that's the voice of elizabeth ungar she is a nat geo explorer and filmmaker talking about her most recent project, Batsies. And 
Elizabeth, I want to ask you three little slices of advice that you might be willing to share with whoever is listening out there right now. Piece of advice number one, if you want to pursue a project that is off the beaten path, do not take no for an answer because you're going to get a lot of no's. I sure did. Um, I think why I've become successful or relatively successful is because I wasn't willing to give up. And it took me years and years to put my first film out into the world. It took me eight years. If you're able to swing a lot of hard work and a lot of no's, I would just keep going because most of the people um, that want to get into this type of work, whether it's storytelling, film, radio, what have you, Mm. it's so hard that if they just don't have the stomach for it, of course, they're going to drop out. But if you keep going and you keep following up with the people, um, you know, that you kind of message and say, hey, I'm doing this, that or or the other, and you keep updating them like once every four or five months, um, they'll remember you. You'll build a network. And over time you'll look around and be like, oh yeah, I know all of these people and some of them want to support me now. Um, and so I, my piece of advice for the very first piece of advice I can give is just stay in there and stick with it because something will come out. People will recognize that you want to achieve your goals and they won't get in the way. Mm. Piece of advice number two, I would say... If you want to make a career in something that you've never done before, you should surround yourself with people who really know what they're doing. Find mentors, find people that believe in you and keep them by your side. I know that when I first started, there was a lot of people in film who did not believe in me. Um, I really didn't know what I was doing, but I eventually met people who liked my ideas who liked what I was about, and they mentored me. And I think there's a difference between finding talented people in the business who are very good at what they do and talented people in the business who believe in you. Mm -hmm. There's a massive difference between those two. So if you're able to find your quote-unquote tribe and you know really um, stick with those people over a long time, you will have a better chance at becoming successful. I feel like I've learned a lot of lessons over my life when it comes to being a woman, a woman who's traveling alone, a woman who loves adventure and wants to make something of my own. I think the biggest piece of advice I can give, particularly to women who have yet to really start their journeys, is when you start a project, you should have all your paperwork in order. Get an accountant. If you have to, like, find a lawyer, find people that can um, find a bookkeeper, find people that can legitimize your business and legitimize your project on paper because that legitimizes you. And I think professionalizing your structure, creating a business, um, you know, LLC, creating a business bank account, doing all the things to adult your life out as quickly as possible will make your life infinitely easier later down the road. I learned a lot of hard lessons by not really doing um, all the paperwork in order when I was first starting out my projects because how could I know it would ever become something big? Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're able to really like level yourself up professionally, 
put everything in place, you will be setting yourself up for such an easier ride down the road. And I think for young filmmakers or people in storytelling, that isn't something they consider at all. Um, you don't need to pay top dollar. Just find people that will work for low rates or people that want to get into the business and they're just getting out of college or whatever it is, but just find people that can professionalize your um, passion. And once you professionalize it, it becomes a real job. You actually have a mechanism to make a real living out of what you want to do, whatever that may be. Elizabeth Ungar, National Geographic Explorer, Sundance-supported filmmaker, storyteller, and environmentalist. First major film was Tigre Gente, and that is on National Geographic and Disney+. Plus. The next film after that is Batsies, and that is going to be at the International Wildlife Film Festival this year. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time and energy joining me on The Trail Has Traveled. Thank you so much, Mandela. It's been an absolute honor to be here. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure we'll reconnect in a few years, and maybe at that point I'll meet you in South America while you're working on some other project, and we'll record an interview in the back of the Land Rover Defender studio. That sounds great. I would be game for that. Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally produced adventure radio series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. Be sure to check out Elizabeth's film, Batsies, at the International Wildlife Film Festival this year at the Roxy Theater. You can also check out my presentation for kids on Thursday, April 27th at 4.15 p.m. at the Roxy Theater. I'll be talking about African animal behavior and, in particular, elephants and rhinos. Afterwards, we'll be screening the film Serengeti. It's pretty good for ages 7 and up. I'll be presenting for adults on the evening of Wednesday, April 26th at 8.15 p.m. at the Roxy Theater. Afterwards, we'll be screening a phenomenal film from Kenya. I hope to see you there. The event for kids is on Thursday, April 27th at 4.15, and the event for adults and young adults is on Wednesday, April 26th at 8.15 p.m. at the Roxy Theater. This is episode 542, and for many years, people have been encouraging me to be featured on The Trail Less Traveled. In order to celebrate surpassing 500 episodes, I opened it up for questions, and we received questions from all over the world. And this evening, I'm going to answer a question that was submitted from Uruguay from my uncle, Johannes van Eeren. I recorded my answer on the edge of the Loxaw River. So here you go, enjoy. Hello Mandela, this is Johannes in Uruguay. And my question is, during your visit to Uruguay and Argentina, what was the most outstanding memory you have of your time down here? Hello my uncle. That's a wonderful question. Everyone listening, that's my uncle, Johannes van Eeren, my father's brother, who has a dairy farm in South Africa, a farm that's been in our family for hundreds of years, a farm where my cousin lives to this day, my cousin and his wife, Marissa. One of my favorite places in the world to visit. One of my other favorite places in the world to visit is my uncle's other farm in Uruguay. Beautiful country between Argentina, 
Brazil and Paraguay on El Rio de la Plata. And I went and lived with my uncle for a while down there. And my favorite memories of Uruguay, drinking yerba mate. My uncle's girlfriend, she is from Uruguay. She taught me how to prepare and drink yerba mate. The benefits of yerba mate are phenomenal. Uh, we traditionally drink it out of a gourd, which is called el mate. And the yerba, the tea, the green tea, is put inside the gourd after the bombilla. The bombilla, the straw, the special straw is placed inside the gourd. You pour hot water on top and you share with friends. So my favorite memories most certainly include sharing mate with new and old friends. And specifically, I remember visiting my uncle on the farm and waking up very early in the morning when his farm, which was about 80, 80 kilometers from Brazil, you could see the fog on the rolling hills and his beautiful spotted horses. And we would wake up early and we would prepare and drink mate. And then I would ride out on a saddle covered in a sheepskin with wool in the early morning light. And we would go look for cattle who were about to give birth, who, who had given birth. And um, we'd come back and we would have uh, maybe some dosa de leche with banana and a nice siesta. And then we'd do it all over again, having mate and riding horses on the beautiful rolling hills and wild country of Uruguay. That's definitely one of my favorite countries in the world in terms of being laid back and relaxed and drinking your tea and riding your horses and making time to see friends. One of my favorite sayings from Uruguay is, if you did all your work done today, then what are you going to do tomorrow? Anyways, thank you very much, Uncle Johannes, for the question. I look forward to visiting you again in Uruguay. I cannot wait. Love you. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please get outside, do something for Mother Earth. And remember, the thing about the NAR is, it doesn't shred itself. <laughs>